Do you know the theology of a broken heart? Do you know the theology of a broken heart? Sir Richard Baker in the 16th century said, Other things may be worse for breaking, yet the heart is never at the best till it be broken. The heart is never at the best till it be broken. Heidelberg Catechism is broken heart, is a broken heart theology. For our own Heidelberg teaches us that we do not find comfort in life and in death until our hearts are broken over our sins and misery. And 1 Samuel 7 begins with a broken heart. 1 Samuel 7 begins with broken heart theology. We read verses 1 and 2 that the ark was brought back to the God's people. It says in verse 2, from that day the ark was lodged at kareth Jerem in a long time, past some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now all the house of Israel, all means all, and house means together. All of God's people were together. It was the United Reformed Churches in Israel. <laughs> the people of God were together with lament. Now this lament was godly sorrow. Now how would I know this is godly sorrow? Because the phrase, they lamented after the Lord. They were lamenting after Yahweh. They were not lamenting after the world. I also know that this lament was godly sorrow because we read that after this lament, the people returned to the Lord. That's godly sorrow. Paul actually tells us that there are two sorrows in this world. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll leave your finger there in Samuel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 10, 2 Corinthians 7, 10, Paul explains that there are two types of sorrow, two griefs in this world. Now, this is the highlight verse, so you get out your highlighters, get out your pens, underline, highlight, you got to know this verse. 2 Corinthians 7, 10. 2 Corinthians 7, 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief or worldly sorrow only produces death. So there are two sorrows in this world. And these two sorrows follow two loves. You either love the Lord or you love the world. You either love God or you love the world. And love of the world finds its comfort in this transitory life. And because it finds its comfort in this transitory life, and because life is felicitous, felicitous and fleeting, it produces death because the world will fade. Everything you hold dear in this world will pass away 
And worldly sorrow is only sorry, therefore, worldly sorrow is only sorry for the situation. Worldly sorrow is sorry for the situation. It's sorry for the hurt that it's caused another, and it's sorry for the pain that it is receiving. But godly sorrow, godly sorrow finds its only comfort, body and soul, in life and in death, in our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And the only thing that can overwhelm godly sorrow is the idea or the thought of ever losing God's love. The only thing that overwhelms godly sorrow is the thought that we might lose God's fatherly pleasure that we might frustrate our God. And so godly sorrow mourns against you, and you only have I done this sin. Against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So the love of God finds sin, and love of God takes extreme ownership of sin and seeks to turn away from it always more and more, that we might love God more and more, that we might find the joy of our salvation, our hope, our peace. And so the love of God is freeing. And the love of God is freeing not only because it forsakes sin, but the love of God also forsakes the world. So when the world crashes around us, crashes on top of us, and we're suffering, those who have godly sorrow will not be overwhelmed by the suffering, but will instead count it all joy to suffer. Because as we lose the world, we're not losing what we value most. And as we lose the world, we draw closer to our highest love. And there we find ultimate peace. And so Paul says, count it all joy to suffer, brothers, because it causes you to fall deeper into the arms of your greatest love. But if suffering only causes more grief and more despair, it might be because we love the world too much. Jesus said it best, right? Where your treasure is, there's your heart. What's your highest good? What is that one thing that if you lost it would break your heart the most? What's that one loss that would break your heart the most? Is it the gospel? Or is it something in this world? Broken heart theology breaks over the loss of Christ, may it never be. So Israel lamented after the Lord, and Samuel seizes this opportunity to call Israel to repentance. Verse 3, and Samuel said to the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. Put them away. You see, repentance isn't just sorrow. They're lamenting after the Lord, but repentance isn't just emotional response. Repentance is action. Repentance is active. Put away. If you have godly sorrow, put away the sin. Repentance is putting off sin and putting on 
the new life. Repentance puts off sin. It puts off the old man, as Paul says, that old man that clings to us, that evil that's as close to us because it's inside of us. It is, uh, it is our old nature. We have to put it off, and we have to put on our new man. We have to put on our new life. We have to put on the life of Christ. You've got to put off the sin that binds you and put on the love of God that frees you. He says, direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So Israel had to put off serving idols by putting on serving God. This is really a sanctification text, teaching us a doctrine of repentance. We have to put off idols and serve the Lord only. And there's more to this put off and put on. For example, if you want to put off pornography, if you want to put off pornography, you have to put on chastity. You have to put on purity. But you got to go deeper than that. Broken heart theology teaches us to go deeper. You have to know the evils, the evils of that world. You got to know the evils of that world, you got to know its abuse. You got to know the harm that it causes, the subjugation, and even the death and the brutality of that world. And when you come to know that world and that evil, it will break your heart. Then you'll do the opposite. You'll promote, you'll protect women. You'll promote, you'll protect godliness and chastity and modesty and goodness and decency. You want to put off greed? You got to go deeper. Broken heart theology tells us go deeper. You got to understand the selfishness of greed, the selfishness that breaks relationships, destroys relationships. No, son, I can't go play with you today. I got to have more. I need more. And then when you come to understand the evilness of that selfishness and that greed, you'll learn to hate it more. And you'll do the opposite. You'll give. You'll serve. So brokenhearted theology teaches us to go deeper. Learn to hate that sin, that misery. And when you learn to hate that sin and misery, you will turn from it more and more. Now, this morning, I want to teach you a theology of a broken heart. I'm going to teach you a theology of a broken heart through Israel's lament. Israel, Israel returned to the Lord with repentance, prayer, and remembrance. So theology of a broken heart repents. Theology of a broken heart repents. It prays and it remembers. Those are the three points of my sermon. I often don't give you three points, so here they are. Take advantage of the three points. <laughs> Write them down. We're going to follow through this text. A theology of a broken heart repents praise and remembers so first point theology of your broken heart repents repentance leads to a life that serves the lord the text says israel served yahweh only they served him only get rid of your ashtaroth get rid of your baals serve the lord only now how do we serve the lord only that's a good question how do we serve the lord only Sola Scriptura. Ha. Huh. I can always get there. Bible alone. 
How do we serve the Lord only? We use his word alone. And of course, if the word alone, sola gratia, by grace alone. And if it is by grace alone, of course it is by faith alone. For without faith, it's what? Impossible to please God. It's impossible to serve God. And if by faith alone, oh, I'm on a rabbit trail, I can't stop. If it's by faith alone, then it's by faith in Christ alone, because our faith looks to Christ, solus Christus, by Christ alone. And if it is by Christ alone, it is to the glory of God alone, soli Deo Gloria. And I'm not just rambling on. I'm cleverly summing up repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, how does repentance lead to salvation? Is Paul actually here promoting works-based salvation? We're saved by repentance? Are we saved by repentance? Do we believe that as a congregation? As Reformed Christians, do we believe that we're, we're saved by our repenting? No. We're saved by Christ alone which we receive by faith alone. So how can Paul say that godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation? Because Christ is a whole Savior. You see, Christ is a complete Savior. Christ not only redeems, he not only justifies and makes us right before a holy God, but Christ renews. The gospel not only makes us stand in our standing right before God, but the, the gospel is leading us into righteousness. It is leading us to forsake our sin. It is drawing us out of ourselves and leading us to the glory of God. The gospel works. It works completely in your life. It transforms and so the life of faith will be a life of repentance. For where there is repentance, there is freedom. So your heart must be broken with sins and misery. And only then will you confess against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And then you will turn to Christ. When you are broken by your sins and misery, there is nowhere else to go. There is nowhere else to turn but to Christ. And you will look upon the cross. And you will see in the cross the Lord of your shame who took your sin, bore it on the cross, and died to wash away all your sin, and there is freedom. And so we direct our hearts to the Lord through the gospel. We serve him only by gospel. We're transformed by grace. Paul calls this returning or this transforming the renewing of your mind. How is your mind renewed? By the washing of the water, by the washing of the word, by the washing of the gospel. And we hear in that gospel, for while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ didn't wait for you to amend your life. He didn't say, hey, once you get on the right track, brother, once things are looking up for you, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to wash away. your." No, he died while you were a sinner. He died while you were ungodly. He's not waiting for you to mend your life. Rather, he has given you grace upon grace. The more you sin, the more grace he gives you. And your sin only draws out his love, where he will conquer you more by his love. He will say, oh yeah, that sin, watch this love. Boom. Now, how does that make you feel? Knowing the Savior is this great, and knowing his love is this power, does it kind of want to make you Serve him only? Does it kind of make you want to turn to the Lord and give your life to him completely? 
We love because he first loved us. That's broken heart theology. Verse 4, and we see it here on display. Verse 4, so the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they serve the Lord only. That's a beautiful verse. This is faith. They serve the Lord only. They heard the word. They responded. This is repentance. This is reformation, by the way. Now, I've been speaking a lot about reformation as we've been making our way through 1 Samuel, haven't I? You know, I've been using reformation as a bridge to bridge our life to this text or this text to our life. It's a way I've been trying to apply this text to our life. Because in Samuel's day, it was dark, post-Tenebras Lux, after darkness, light. Israel had forsaken God's word, and Samuel, Samuel returns with the word, right? The light of God's word, and he, he sets Israel back upon the word, and where the word is, there is light. It lights our path, and we can walk in safety. Post-Tenebras Lux was a Reformation slogan. I've also said that Reformation comes from fearing God's holiness, I said, we are only reformed in and through acceptable worship. You know, the reformers had a saying for this too, lex orendi, lex credendi. The way of worship is the way of life. The reformed believe the way of worship is the way of life. Worship rightly, believe rightly, live rightly. And that way of worship should lead us to a life of our text this morning, repentance. You see, friends, worship should break our hearts. When you come into worship, the liturgy should break your heart with the reading of the law. And the reading of the law should break your heart. You should see the sins of your misery. But then worship should mend your heart with the gospel. Worship should break your heart and mend your heart. It should break it and then fill it with the love of God. See, worship transforms. And the result of proper worship is repentance, a broken heart. And you're going to need this means of grace if you're ever going to serve the Lord only, serve the Lord only. You see, the Canaanite religion that Israel had to disavow, they had to put off this Canaanite religion, the Ashtaroth and the Baals. And the Canaanite religion Israel embraced exerted a powerful appeal on the flesh. Canaanite religion, the church was both chapel and brothel. And there was a powerful, sinful appeal to the flesh that was going to make it hard for the Israelites to turn from the Baals and the Ashtaroth and serve the Lord only. And it's hard to give up. And so it is with all worldly sins. It's hard to give up sin. Why? Because we love it too much. And how do we give up something that we love so much. One love needs to destroy another love. We need the love of God, and we need to know the love. It's gospel. And by the gospel, we can overcome our sins and our misery. By the gospel, we can serve the Lord only. By the gospel, we can put away and we can put on love of God through Christ. You see, love comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of God. And you're thinking, man, my pastor can bring any text back to the church, make it churchly, the need of church. Yes, you need the church. 
It says all Israel, the entire house of Israel came together. It was a worship service. All Israel gathered to repent. All Israel, the church, we must gather for the same. You see, brokenhearted theology teaches us one thing. When you have a broken heart, what do you need? You need community, don't you? When your heart's broken, you want someone to come alongside of you. That's why the Bible says that we must come alongside one another. We must be Christians. We're not Christians individually by ourselves, but Christians together. We come beside one another. We grieve with those who grieve. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And we together confess our sins. And we together receive the grace of God. We together are strengthened in the Lord. We together confess our sins. We together receive the grace of God. We all need the gospel. Paul, the Bible says, we love because he first loved us. We together to be broken, and we together should be serving and, and treasuring and reaching after God's grace. Theology of a broken heart repents confessionally, individually, and together. And the theology of the broken heart prays, verse 5. My second point, theology of a broken heart prays, verse 5. Then Samuel said, gather all of Israel. Gather all of Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they repented of their sins, and they had a prayer service. Repent of your sins, and, and let's get together and have a prayer service. They had a Wednesday night prayer service, I think. <laughs> Verse 6, so they gathered in Mizpah and drew water out and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, well, they gathered and they fasted. The pouring out of the water was a form of, it was a, a picture of fast, giving away something they needed. You see, fasting serves prayer. Fasting, fasting causes us to suffer so that we might draw nearer to our God in prayer. And so Israel here is fasting before the Lord, fasting in prayer. And we see here that prayer led them to what? Confession. We have sinned against the Lord. They fasted, they prayed, they confessed. We have sinned against, this is David's against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is right, done what is evil in your, in your eyes. So this corporate confession of sin, by this corporate confession of sin, Israel took ownership of their sin. And until we take ownership of our sin, we'll never pray rightly. We'll never serve the Lord rightly, nor love our neighbor rightly. You see, if we never take ownership of our sin, if we never take extreme ownership of our sin, we'll always be busy plucking splinters out of everyone's eyes. And we won't see the log in our own eyes. But when we take ownership of the situation and of the sin, we see that log, and then we can start to remove it more and more. And as we take this ownership of our sin, as we're removing this log, we'll improve. There's freedom. We're no longer just a victim. It's not their fault. It's my fault. What could I have done better in the situation? What could I have said that had been better? How could I have acted that had been better? What could I have done? How could I have served the Lord only in this situation where I failed to serve the Lord only in this situation and I'm reaping the consequences of my sins? But you take that log out of your own eye, there's freedom. You can begin to know your sins and your misery. You can begin to confess your sins and your misery and you can become transformed by the grace of God. And genuinely begin to start loving and serving your neighbor as yourself. You'll be free. You'll start examining your own life in detail. In detail. 
how could I have done better? How could I have spoken better? How could I have explained this better? How can I have loved, cared for, served, blessed, treated to the glory of God? So when you come before the Lord in prayer, we come with repentance. We come with our sin, but we also come to his love. We come to his forgiveness. We come to his grace. Our hearts are broken. They're mended, and then with broken hearts, we can start loving and serving others who are just as broken. We can together find lasting comfort. So we must confess our sins in prayer. And again, it's not going to be easy. Verse 7, now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And the people of Israel heard it, and they were afraid. They were afraid. The Philistines went up against Israel because they were not socially distanced. And that's true. It was a practice in ancient warfare to lock down public assembly. If you, were, if you overcome a group of people and you want to tyrannize them, you do not let them have free expression of speech. You do not let them have public assembly because what happens when a large group of people can publicly assemble? They can mobilize to throw off the tyranny. So you want to, the Philistines see this. They see them growing in number. They got to go and break them up. They got to go and teach them a lesson. And so just as the Israelites were beginning to trust the Lord, as they were turning to God and worship, the Philistines happened. And guess what, Christian? The Philistines will always happen. They always happen. The moment you repent, the moment you say, I'm going to turn to the Lord, I'm going to put off, guess what happens? Oh, that temptation gets greater. It will get stronger. The moment you say, I am going to stop doing this, oh, man, it will start pulling on your heart. It will become harder and harder. The moment you say, I'm going to get on my knees and pray, and I'm going to love and serve the Lord, the world is going to stand against you, and it's going to be harder and harder. The more you grow in Christ, the harder it's going to get. And Christianity is difficult. The Christian life is hard. Impossible. But the theology of a broken heart teaches us a valuable lesson in this helplessness. When I am weak, then I'm strong. That's the theology of the broken heart. Where when we find our helplessness, we know where to turn for our help. Verse 8. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from our hand, from the hand of the Philistines. This is another beautiful response of Israel. If you remember a week ago, we recall when the Philistines came against the Israelites and came up against them, the Israelites turned to magic. They turned to superstition to protect them. They said, hey, if we take God's furniture into battle, we'll have God's power. If we take the ark, we'll have God's power. We'll be victorious. But that's not faith. That's superstition. It's magic. But now they're turning to the Lord in prayer. That's faith. So now they're getting it. They're turning to the Lord. They're trusting the Lord. You see, faith only has two weapons in this life. You as a Christian, you only have two weapons in this life. One is the word of God and the other is prayer. And our text here this morning is prayer. And by prayer, you can turn to the Lord. And no matter the situation, you can trust the omnipotent hand of God to hear your prayer. And you know that he is almighty and able 
to answer. You also know that he is faithful and he desires to answer you. And you can find confidence in prayer, confidence in a sovereign God who holds heaven and earth and all creatures and will not let one single creature, he will not let one single atom even move without his will, and his will is always for your good. And so you can take confidence in prayer, even in the midst of the darkness, even in the valley of the shadow of death, we know our God. And we have peace. And we must also know that the sovereignty of God will often allow the enemy to box us in. The sovereignty of God will allow the enemy to conquer. He will allow the enemy to come in and make it so we have no help. He'll take, God will strip all of our support. He'll knock down all of our defenses. We'll become defenseless without any help. And that's just where you need to be as a Christian. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. That's the theology of a broken heart. When I'm weak, I'm strong. Because I'll turn to the Lord. And many of us here in this church and many Christians around the world, we need to know our sins. and We need to be broken so that we know where our help comes from. So we'll know the power of prayer and we'll pray more. You're not praying enough. The Bible says pray what? Without ceasing. Pray to the Lord. Turn to the Lord in prayer. And find salvation. And find your salvation secure in a holy, triune, sovereign God. And then remember his grace. Theology of a broken heart remembers verse 9 and verse 10. So Samuel took a sucking lamb, a sucking lamb, and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered. So they go to worship. And as they're worshiping, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, as they're in the midst, focused on the Lord, the Philistines drew near to attack. They're worshiping the Lord with their face, with their backs turned toward the enemy, and here comes the enemy to destroy. And the Philistines drew near to attack. But there's one problem this time with the Philistines. The Israelites were worshiping rightly, (laughs) but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. The 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 enemy has one problem against the Christian, and that problem is the Christian in prayer, and that problem is the Christian in worship. That problem is the Christian leaning on grace and following God's word, and it will destroy The Lord thundered. That's Israel's salvation. That thundering of the Lord, that mighty sound was their victory. That's their salvation. Verse 11, and the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. And this thundering, this mighty shout, this victorious sovereign for Israel is only what God promised. Listen to Deuteronomy 28. Verse 7, Deuteronomy 28, verse 7, the word of the Lord promises Israel, the Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you another way. And Hannah, Samuel's mother, knew this promise quite sure. 
Listen to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, Hannah's prayer. Verse 10, Hannah's prayer. She says, the adversaries of the, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. That's Samuel's mom. And now we see that promise coming true. The Lord is thundering against the enemy. It's the promise of the Lord. And as the Lord has answered his promises, Israel needed to remember these promises. Verse 12, then Samuel took a stone after the victory. He takes this stone. They've been victorious. The Lord is, is destroyed and they're enemies. And he takes a stone and he sets it up between Mizpah and Shin and he called its name Ebenezer. Here I'll raise my Ebenezer. You know that old hymn, here I raise my Ebenezer. Here it is. And here's our Ebenezer. For he said, and this is what Ebenezer means, till now the Lord has helped us. Here I raise my Ebenezer, till now the Lord has helped us. This is a confession, till now. Look at it. That's probably an underlining verse right there. Highlight that verse. Till now the Lord has helped us. Now think about it. Until now, he is confessing that the Lord has been their helper. Ever since the beginning, the Lord has been their helper. Now think about what has happened to Israel in the last two chapters, or in the last chapter at least. In the last chapter, the Philistines slaughtered 30,000 Israelites. Until now the Lord has helped. He was helping us when he... How was the Lord helping us when 30,000 of us were slaughtered? Israel, the Philistines routed 30,000, but how many did Yahweh route? 50,000. How is the Lord helping us when he slaughtered 50,000? Until now, the Lord, it's brokenhearted theology. The Lord was their helper. He was helping them see the sin of their misery. He was helping them to see their own sin, their own misery. He was helping them to see the need for the Lord, that they might lament, that they might put their hope, their confidence, their trust in the Lord. He was breaking their hearts, that they would turn to the Lord and find a God who will never leave or forsake them. And so the story ends with God protecting and providing for his people, and it says there was peace. The story ends with God protecting and providing for his people, and there was peace. That's the gospel. In Christ, God is protecting and providing for you, and there is peace. In the gospel, there is peace. God has washed away all your sins. There's peace. In the gospel, God has delivered you from the tyranny of the devil. He's delivered you from death. There is peace. In the, God, in the gospel, God is watching over you in such a way that not a hair falls from your head without the will of your Father in heaven. There is peace. Hallelujah, what a Savior. How can you not want to give him all your life? Right? Such a salvation. Such a Savior. How can you not give him everything? That's broken heart theology. And you got to remember it. Because your heart's going to break even more. But you will find joy and comfort in this life, in Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.